Hello and welcome back to Spy Hard's podcast. I'm Agent Scott. And I'm Cam the Provocateur, hitting the pedal to the metal. And we are here with your first Spy Master interview of the year 2023. Cam, who do we have joining us? Yes, we are talking to J.D. Zyke, the screenwriter behind Ronin, the 1998 spy thriller starring Robert De Niro and directed by John Frankenheimer. This is a, a fan favorite film and we're thrilled to have JD on the show to help us break it down. So without further ado, strap yourselves in. We're going for a ride. Cam, hit it. And joining us on the show now, it is the screenwriter for 1998's smash hit spy film Ronin. It is Mr. JD Zyke. Hello, JD. How are you doing? I am doing very well. Very nice to meet you guys. Thanks for asking me to be here. I, I don't know, by the way, that it was a smash hit. <laughs> I, th I think it was a, um, what's the French phrase, a success de steam. Like, it, you know, it got, it was, it made its money back. Um, it got really good reviews, but where it was successful, like really successful was on DVD. Um, uh, and uh, I, I can swear on this podcast, right? Like, uh, um, go for it. I, I swear way too much, but um, it just made a shit ton of money on DVD. I, I got lucky. It came out on DVD right when the DVD was exploding, and people were buying them to sort of have a library of DVDs until you know. Then at some point, everybody went, "Wow, I have all these DVDs. I never watched them, and now I stream everything." So. Well, it's a smash hit in our hearts, at least. But yeah, you look at the reaction today, for instance. I put a tweet out asking for questions to, when we're speaking to you, and I've been inundated with questions. So we oh, have a lot oh, to discuss. There's cool. a fan base for this film. So don't, you know, it, maybe the box office wasn't great, but... And by the way, I, you know what? I, I, I'm, let me say, A, I'm really proud of it. And I do. it's really become a cult thing that I know. I, I've gotten emails from people in like Uzbekistan going, I really like your movie. And, you know, I'm a screenwriter. I'm not going to ask you to read what I've written, but I just wanted to make contact. It's, it's funny where it's gone. Yeah. Well, I, I think before we maybe get to Ronan, let's paint a wee little picture about you, JD, and how you got to the game of, of writing the film. So the first question we tend to ask is what interested you in getting into screenwriting in your case? Um, I saw the movie Chinatown when I was 15. And I thought it was, I, I just went, who wrote that? Robert Town? I want to be that guy. Um, and that really, you know, that became what I wanted to do. Then I went to college and I went to SUNY Purchase where I teach now in the film program. But I didn't really see, my, I didn't want to go to the film school. I didn't want to edit uh, or be a DP. because I didn't think I'd be any good at it. I kind of wanted to write. So I crafted sort of a playwriting major. It was a very loose school back then it still is now but you know we didn't even get grades it was an honors pass fail thing and i created my classes i had like six and seven people you could do any independent study you wanted it was a very small school i wrote a lot of plays i was i decided i'd be a playwright i optioned my senior project play it was going to be an off-broadway play it was sort of out of left field somebody saw the senior project production they were older they were part of a theater group they optioned the play the the night before rehearsals were going to start the director was in an accident <laughs> he ended up in traction in the hospital um we we, we lost the theater space since we, we couldn't leave they didn't want to be dark they rented to somebody else and our backers went like oh we needed a tax write-off we were hoping to make money but we at least needed a tax write-off and they put their money in something else 
And I was 23 and I was like, I'm going to be a playwright. And then, okay, I'm going to go, you know, bust some tables. <laughs> and <laughs> off of that, I, you know, I kept writing plays, but I, I played in a band through my 20s. I was still writing plays, but as different things happened, I started to think about screenwriting again. And I started, you know, I read the Sid Field book, which was the only thing that was available. And then I read William Goldman's great book, uh, Adventures in the Screen Trade, um, which was very useful, although it's less of a screenwriting manual and just sort of a, a memoir of his own time, but with really valuable screenwriting lessons. The Hollywood he talks about is kind of gone now, but it is, when I came of age, it was what was there. So I, I did all of that. And you know, as my 20s ended and you know, or my band didn't become a famous band, uh, I was writing screenplays and I wrote one after another and the first few sucked. Let me assure everybody, everybody's first screenplay sucks. <laughs> Maybe there's the occasional one that was great. I have yet to see it and I've been doing this a long time. And I've been teaching a screenwriting a really long time. And it, it's a craft that you have to learn. So I spent a lot of time learning craft. I, you know, I got a job working in animation, but I sort of fell into it and nothing ever happened with it. But the, the guy who made it spent you know, like over a million dollars of his own money. We animated a couple of episodes, um, but he couldn't sell it. I, I, I didn't know anything about business at this point. And one of the things I learned was like, don't spend your own money without having a distribution deal in place. Like, it's, you know, is if you don't, you know, and this, this was before, but right before, um, El Mariachi um, came out and, and Reservoir Dogs, Laws of Gravity, all these films where people were like, I'm going to make my own little independent film and then we're going to get rich. Um, and all these people made movies on credit cards and, and almost none of them did anything other than sit there because it's, you, got, you know, Robert Rodriguez is really, really talented. It's, it's something you have to remember if you watch El Mariachi. <laughs> like it's for $7,000, it's an incredibly well-made film and you know, so you got to be talented and lucky and um but i learned so much working in this animation project i, I learned about storyboarding and just delivering on deadline i found that i was very good writing the deadline and i came out the other end of this 18 months experience where i worked full time where i was then you know um you know unemployed as a writer again um but i had learned so much and i had written a few screenplays and now this was when, when El Mariachi happened. And I started to make kind of a living. Everybody had an idea for a screenplay. And they always said, if you write my screenplay, we'll share all the money that we make when no doubt we'll sell it. And I said, yeah, but you have to pay me. And I started, to, you know, I had had enough credits and I had screenplays to show people that were quite, you know, capable. Mm -hmm. And I started being able to charge five or even sometimes $10,000 to, to do it. And, you know, I'm sure, I think I also, you know, I, one of the first ones I did for a thousand dollars, I took whatever I could get. <laughs> um, so it was like a hard scrabbling existence, but I was really continuing to make money as a writer and supplementing that with word processing when I had to, and I was writing more scripts, but now I had really gotten polished. Mm -hmm. And before I wrote Ronin, I, I wrote two scripts that got an enormous amount of attention. One was called Bad Karma. And um, I, I was going to sell it. I, I had an offer. I had, but I fell into before I was going to sell it. I fell into an agent 
And for your listeners who want to know how you get an agent, I went to the right funeral. Like I, you know, I went, it was actually a memorial service, but I, my, the father of a good friend had passed away. Her cousin was at the service. Her cousin wanted to produce movies, was segueing from something else. And I was hoping she would hire me for $5,000. I gave her a script and I never heard from her again. But for the blink of an eye, she dated a guy who found the script under the bed and called me up. Hmm. And he was an agent. <laughs> and he became my agent. And I had, had another agent who was a relatively big deal. But and again, you, you, you put your work out there. You show it to as many people as you can and you make contacts, but it, it's brutal and you got to keep slamming your head against the wall. And my first agent hadn't really done anything. I later found out that he was, the, the expression is hip pocketing, me, like kind of keeping me in a hip pocket. And if something happened, then that would be great. Then he was my agent, but nothing happened. And, but when this new guy came on, like he took the scripts that, that, that the other agent had had. And I found out he hadn't sent them anywhere because he had to, when the new agent came on board, the old agent had to legally show him where they had gone and they had gone almost nowhere. Um, and even though I optioned these things, the, the bad karma and um, the revenger, which was my Shakespearean Batman, I optioned them. They never got made, but they made me a real reputation. People start, I, suddenly I was this writer around town and bad karma there's a guy named Lloyd Levin, who I'm pretty sure is still producing a really nice guy. Worked for Larry Gordon, famous producer, Point Break, Die Hard, you know, 48 Hours, you name it. This guy did it in the 80s. And um, Lloyd worked, you know, you know, he was Larry's top guy, like the guy really in a lot of ways running the, the company on the day to day level. And Lloyd loved bad karma. And my entire deal was negotiated. And my wife is pregnant at this point in time. And I'm making a hard scrabble living as a writer. And this was for hundreds of thousands of dollars. And the day ended and the deal was done, but we weren't closed yet because it was like 8.30 PM in the morning. We, they would messenger over the deal memo and we'd be closed. And then the next morning, they never call back. Of course. And at the end of the day, I found out that like somebody that they wanted it. And I, I you know, the, this is what I kind of remember hearing. And you never know if it's true or not. Like, you know, that, but that Ron Myers thought it was too violent, the script I had written. It was a very sort of of the ilk of Pulp Fiction and Reservoir Dogs, with, but with a major woman's part. This was before sort of Kill Bill. Like, you know, there, there was a gun in the woman's hand, you know, a good few. It was one of the distinctive things about it. Anyhow, it fell through. I optioned it elsewhere. But Lloyd Levin was a champ. He hired me to write another project. But before I wrote that, I was angry. And I had four weeks and I wrote Ronin. I, and I'd been thinking about it for a long time. But I had this four-week window and in anger, I wrote Ronin. Um, now, I had been thinking about it for a really long time. So it's not like, oh, I dashed it off in four weeks. I had a notebook filled with shit. And I had been planning on writing it. This that anger became my impetus. I mean, well, obviously, we're, we're straying towards sort of Ronan now. But I think you just mentioned that your film before sounded like a Shakespearean Batman. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, still maybe. Yeah, like my that fantastic. One of my favorites. Um, it was called The Revenger in grad school um, when I was aiming to get a PhD because I thought I was in the midst of all of this. I was I had been targeted towards the PhD and told my screenwriting career hit but um i read the revenger's tragedy by um 
oh God, it's not, it's not Marlowe. It's not just Stella, not Shakespeare. And I'm going to blank. Is it, and it's not Thomas Kidd. Maybe it's Kidd. I, it's, it's, but anyways, um, I loved the word revenger. Mm-hmm. So I just, I just created a character who is a highwayman and he's kind of a celebrity. I, I, had, I had read a bunch of history and, it, and I made all this, it made up whatever I wanted to, but I used a lot of historical fact as a kind of patina of truth, even though I was making up all manner of shit that's remotely not true. <laughs> um, but uh, the, um, the idea of it was this guy's a highwayman. He, he doesn't know, he's, he was an orphan. He doesn't know his own backstory. He was raised sort of by the church he was, and he was educated um, and taught to fight. He doesn't know why, but then he was supposed to become kind of a clergyman and he just blew all that over and became a highwayman. And then one day, and this was you know, how long ago this was in my mind, Sean Connery shows up on his doorstep and says, <laughs> I was your father's man at arms. Your parents were murdered. And now we're going to take revenge. And, um, and, you know, my hero, whose name was John Rake, says to Sean Connery, I'm about to do the biggest robbery of my life. And there's no chance. I, I don't even believe you are who you say you are. I don't care. This is the biggest thing. And I'm doing my job. And so Sean Connery signs up because he wants to keep this guy safe and close. And of course, the guy they're robbing ends up being the guy who killed his parents and so forth. It, it, it all connects. And the main female character um, is, is a young con artist named Mouse who wants to get on the stage but can't because she's a woman. And, and, um, uh, and, and the, my hero needs a con artist. For, he needs a woman to play a part for one of the parts of what he's doing and, and, and it all goes from there. And, and, and Shakespeare is a character, Ben Johnson's a character. I, I had great fun with it and it got a lot of attention. Um, and a lot of people said, oh, you know, nobody really wants, this is really great. We'll hire you to write something else, but you know, Shakespeare, nah. And then after Shakespeare and Love came out, people were like, oh man, we wish we'd seen this before, you know, Shakespeare and Love. I was like, yeah, you did, you passed. Hmm. Even though it's a radically different film, but just, the business works in sort of the broadest of possible strokes. Character Shakespeare as a character and a thing. Eh, who wants to watch that? Oh, it was a great success, but now we can't do it because it's been done. Right. And, so. you know, with the development of Ronan, I believe um, I had seen blurbs that um, you kind of came up with the idea, or at least the idea sort of started to germinate as you watched um, or read uh, Shogun by James Clavell. And the, I, I encountered the word Ronan. Yeah. When I read Shogun, and I thought it was just the coolest fucking word, and I and I was fifteen, and and, um, and I was just trying. I I read this nine hundred page book. It was kind of a task I set for myself, and I just thought the word Ronin was so cool, and I knew by then I wanted to write, and I was like, I'm going to use this word someday. Okay. And um and so that was the first Genesis. The second Genesis was an article in the New York Times about how the fall of you know the berlin wall and then russia like that the end of the cold war had put all these intelligence agents out in the field including american ones because we were downsizing it was like okay it's all over you know little did we know what was coming (laughs) but there were especially like ecstasy and kgb you know and from the other satellite nations who all had people in place for this and they all had this skill set and and they led and one of the advisors on Ronan, a guy named Mick Gould, who um, 
was in he was in the British Army, he was in the Falklands War, and then he, he you know, and he's I'm not revealing any secrets. He's been an advisor on movies. He gives interviews. He had a period of of doing this kind of stuff. He was the advisor on Ronan. And he said that they called this kind of stuff legalized criminality. When they did it for government, it was legal, but it was criminal. They were always, they were breaking in and stealing stuff. They were kidnapping, whatever it was. I don't know that he kidnapped anybody, but stealing of stuff was absolutely. So it was legalized criminality. And now all these guys who had been doing what their governments considered legalized criminality, they'd been cut loose. So the only thing that remained was criminality. And they could make a living do, you know, being bodyguards, but also, you know, being mercenaries, except instead of looking for wars, doing all manner of stuff. Um, you know, you know, becoming gangsters or a, a kind of gangster. And, and a whole new species of world was just being created that, you know, it's easier to see in hindsight, like places like Blackwater coming to exist, you know, you know and, and I'm sure Halliburton already existed, but the, you know, the creation of sort of security for sale as a business, both legitimate with real multinationals, which again, how they exist outside of a lot of the parameters of law a lot of the time, but, um, uh, and then, you know, really freelance people. And, and at that point, when I saw that article, I went, Ooh, those are my Ronin. And that was still a little ways before I wrote this. Okay. You, you said earlier about sort of luck yes. in Hollywood. And it's one thing that we've noticed when we've spoken to screenwriters in the past, that it, it, sometimes lightning just strikes and, and magic happens. And I think this, and you look at these moments in your career leading up to writing Ronan where you found these nuggets of stories that have come together. And as you said, you wrote it in a four-week gap between two two jobs. And so that that is your lightning moment. But so what happened then? You wrote, the, I guess, the basic script for Ronan? Uh, and and then what? Well, okay. So I, I again, and it, 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 it wasn't even between two jobs. I didn't know what was coming next. All, all I right. knew was this, you know, three hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars up front, which would have been even that much more, was not coming. And I had a pregnant wife. Like it, it was whoa. I, again, I'm making ten thousand dollars a job if I'm lucky. You know, a lot five thousand seventy five hundred. You know, catching word processing shifts when need be. I'm still a scrabbling. I've been a working writer for a while now, but um, and for the couple of years, and it seemed like shit was going to happen for me. I I'd had a previous agent. Nothing. Stuff was percolating, and I was making money. But it was you know when you're to this day, I still like fucking. I'm not, you know next week I'm unemployed. It, it, it's, it's tough to an actor, they, uh, you know, until you hit a level of success where you never have to work again. And I have never hit that level. <laughs> it's, you know, um, uh, you know, that you're always worried about where your next job is. And I, and over time, maybe at the end of this, we can get to the, the, you know, I've had, as any number of people do, the, the longer you're in a business, the more you're going to encounter a period where you're unemployed for a period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there was a point in Hollywood when after the Writers Guild strike in like 2007, I think it was, and then it was followed by, and that lasted well into 2008. Um, and it had already changed the di- the parameters of how Hollywood was acting. The, the, a lot of development that happened previously where they would develop 20 movies to make one. Now it was like, we're going to develop four things to make one and they're all going to be called Avengers. Right. It just, it, it was a shift in paradigm. And plus, 
the, the recession hit and, and movie studios were all owned by conglomerates who said, we're, we're changing the way you spend money. And the, the paradigm changed. Lots of people never worked ever again. I had several years without a job. Like it was, it was a grim time. I had a bunch of things that almost happened. The, the, you know, again, we're going to do it. We're going to do it. And then it doesn't happen. You know, brutal things to go through, but they, they happen a lot. Um, uh, and then sort of, you know, we've, the, the world is segued. Unfortunately, I've been busy again, but um, sort of, you know, steering it back to the economy of, of Hollywood at the time of Ronan. Um, uh, and, you know, kind of, you know, being lucky to, to, to speak to your, your point there. Um, you know, you get lucky by putting yourself out as much as possible. I, everybody I know who got lucky, it's almost always because they threw themselves out in so many places that they were available to get lucky. Um, Ranch, uh, Ricky, the guy who Harrison Ford plays in the Jackie Robinson movie, the, the guy who brings Jackie Robinson into Major League Baseball, but who also started the farm system. He's a really brilliant guy. He had a saying, luck is the residue of design. And I really, I really believe that. Like, you still have to get lucky because lots of people put their work out there and nobody notices it. And it's brutal. It, it sucks. And it's, it's the... Risk you got to take to be a working, you know, artist. Um, but it's, it's everybody I know who does this. The they all put their work out there and they got noticed. And maybe some haven't come easier than others. It, you know, I, it didn't come easy for me, and and the people I know, it didn't come easy for. Um, but you know, you put it out there, and by the, and by the time I wrote Ronan, I had that had manifested because I had already had an agent and I was, I had now, you know, before I wrote it, I had option to, you know, I had made sort of, you know, 20,000 in, in six weeks. So my, my agent was going, we're going to make more. Don't worry. It was just, you know, it looked good. It felt good. But then the Ronin, the bad karma deal fell apart. And I was like, Oh my God, you know, what if my agent never calls me again or he'll call me, but nobody wants to talk to me now, or suddenly all this stuff's going to not happen. But anyways, Lloyd hired me to rewrite a script, Lloyd Levin, and I wrote Ronan and my manager, um, you know, took that out. Um, and he had actually, he, he had gotten these guys to give me $5,000 just to write whatever I wanted. It was part of the, he optioned several things and, and they were just maybe, I can't remember five thousand seventy five hundred. Either way, it was write whatever you want, and they got and they got to come along as producers. And the first time it got optioned, they got a nice little fee. Uh, but anyways, I, I wrote this. My manager took it out on the market, and at this point, I'm now here's this guy everybody's heard about. I was getting my moment of being flavor of the month. I was just hired to write a script for Larry Gordon, and this script goes out on the market. And a um, guy named Toby Jaffe, who I think still works for Neil Moritz, um, you know, who does all the Fast and Furious movies and all manner of other action films. And um, Toby was working for a guy named Dan Melnick, um, a company called Indie Prod. And Toby loves my script. And he wanted to buy it, but my manager went like, you know, and they offered a very nice sum of money, but not nearly as much as I was offered for Better Karma, but far more than a typical option. And my man, my then agent who would become my manager said, this is not enough for him to sell it. 
but you can option it. And they optioned it for one year. And it was, I would have sold it, but my, my agent knew what he was doing. And he sort of played poker. And he said, nobody else, this script has just gone out of the market. And they wanted to get it off by the end of the day. They, were, they feared other people picking up. There was already people calling about it. This was during the day when a hot spec sale could really happen. Um, the spec market is not what it once was. You know, the taking a spec out on the market, it wasn't ever a guaranteed sale, but people would just be worried that somebody else was going to scoop them and somebody else was going to get it. And it would create, you know, sometimes insane things. So I optioned Ronan. Uh, my daughter was born. I, you know, I got, I started getting job after job. Now, Ronan was looking good. The guys were loving it. But then this company, the IndyProd left its deal with TriStar and TriStar controlled my screenplay. Um, IndyProd had, had used their money to pay for it. And, um, and now their deal was ending and Toby Jaff was going off to work for somebody else. So now all of my champions were gone. And the people who were at TriStar were like, who's this guy? You know, they, what's the script that we, we know nothing about? And it's, if people leave, your project is always in danger because other people, if it succeeds, the execs think that the other executives who developed it will get the credit. And if it fails, they'll get the blame. And that, that's actually in William Goldman's Adventures in the Screen Trade. And that, this is still true. I just had it happen a year ago where an exec I was working with was fired and my project was gone. Um, and uh, the, so anyhow, my, my script sort of just sat there then. It had another six months or whatever to go. Um, but as the option was about to expire, and I've now worked really, it's been a very good year. I'm suddenly feeling like I'm only a screenwriter. I've done three studio jobs in a row. Everybody's been happy with my work. Um, and the option's about to expire and people are calling and um, my manager it slips the script to Frank Mancuso Jr., who is the producer of the movie. Um, and he had made a bunch of films and his father was the head of um, MGM, which owned United Artists, the company that made Ronin. Right. And, um, and he had hired a woman named Lindsay Durand to run uh, United Artists. She had been Sidney Pollack's partner, and she's still really respected. She is great with screenplay. A brilliant woman, and Rebecca Pollock, Sidney Pollock's daughter, was her second in command, and Frank brought them the script, and they loved it. And um, uh, and the we had this great phone call on Friday, and, you know, you know, Frank said to my manager at the end of it, and my, this, my agent had left and become, left his agency and become my manager at this point. Um, and there's not a whole lot of difference between that. Managers tend to often be sort of smaller. They can get a producing position on a movie. There's some things they can do, some things they can't do. He functioned very much the same. Um, uh, this was a Friday afternoon. The option expired Monday morning. Um, and Frank, at the end of this phone call, Frank says, so come Monday morning, if we call, this script's still going to be available. And my manager said, yes, but it might not be by Friday after, my Monday afternoon. <laughs> Because there was other interest. And Monday morning at 9 a.m., they put in a preemptive offer and bought it off the table. So then it was sold. Um, so that, and that was sort of a whirlwind, you know, I wrote it in sort of August of whatever year I wrote it. And, you know, I didn't sign the option agreement till literally 
the day after my daughter was born, I, she was, or the day my daughter was born, I think she was in the hospital and I was staying in the room with her and my wife. And I walked down and faxed the signature sheet back to my attorney closing the deal. Um, and uh, so now um, a year, you know, it's a, you know, it's a year later, my daughter is just over a year old. It's been a year and a half since I've written it, but now it's been bought. Right. Um, and, uh, and at this point, um, it take, it, the next chunk of this time is first, we're going to find a director. And actually, first, I worked with Frank and Lindsay Duran and Rebecca Pollock on the, on the script. And they were great to work with. I, it, you know, I fly out to L.A. and we would do this all via Zoom now. But there's no chance. We, and this was this was the old days. You know, we'll fly you first class and put you in the Beverly Hills Hotel, and and you know it was it was very nice while it lasted. It, um, and it wasn't something I ever got to get too used to. It didn't happen at all. I mean, happened enough that it was really pleasant. But it, this was sort of the first time I had been flown out before. But this was on a go movie, and it was just sort of a whole other level, or, or a movie that they were hoping would be a go movie. So we worked on the script. They gave me notes. They, they were wonderful to work with. They took very good care of me. Um, everything I did, they liked. And eventually we... Yeah. Sort of just what were some of the notes in the development of the story? Um, you know, gosh, the, it, it's really hard to remember because like a lot of the stuff that we talked about, the, you know, it, we want to get to the part where the script gets changed because eventually David Mavitt comes in. It, it, it became a less than wonderful experience for me, though I, I'm still proud of the film. And even at its worst, when I was really angry, you know, my manager said to me, did the check clear? <laughs> Next, <laughs> you know, get over it. This, this is grown up land, you know, pull, pull up your big boy pants and deal with this. Like, and, and you have to, it's, it's a business. It's, you know, show business, not show friends. Um, and it really is a business, you know, it's an industry and, but, it, you know, there, there was a scene that's long gone. I can talk about why this scene is long gone in a moment. And part of it was I was writing, I was very influenced by, like, you know, John Woo films when I wrote this. Um, and that had led me to, you know, Melville's French films, you know, the, the Le Samurai, which totally influenced the killer. They I mean, completely. There's so many similarities. It's kind of like a rewrite on some level. Um, and... Uh, you know, and I knew all of these histories and I knew I wanted to use the word Ronin. Um, and I'd come up with this thing and uh, the, but I wanted to make it a sort of John Woo film. And, and one of the things I did was write a scene where Jean Renault took um, uh, the De Niro character into a video store where an expat American, expat American who I wanted to be Jeffrey Wright, who had been in a reading of something I had written. Oh, cool. <laughs> and um, so I knew who he was. And, and, uh, um, and it was just going to be he's, that he sells like these uh, pirated DVDs of like Hong Kong action films that these that the locals don't even know anything about. And, and uh, but meanwhile, he's really an information broker. This is his cover. And they talked sort of in the code of movies. There's an Irish production company setting up shop over here. You know, the Irish a Russian film company's just come in. I hear they're trying to make a deal, but nobody knows for sure. And Lindsay Duran loved that. She made me like, I want more of this. And it was funny because we went, when we did go into De Niro's office, one of the execs who worked there was like, I have a real problem with this. It doesn't seem to me to be real. And I'm like, real? It's a fucking fantasy. <laughs> like, 
it's not, I didn't, of course, say that. I, I you know, I, I feared being, I was my first, I'm in a movie with a room with a movie star and John Frankenheimer, who is this great famous director. And, and before we got into this room, we had to get Frankenheimer on board. And, and um, the first thing we did was show the script to Alfonso Cuaron, who had just finished making The Little Princess. And, or no, he had just finished making Great Expectations. Um, uh, and he was sort of exhausted. I didn't even know if it had come out yet, but he had also made A Little Princess, which is a staggeringly beautiful film. Yeah. I, thought that, I thought that Great Expectations, the way he talked about it, I didn't go into such detail. I think he was a little exhausted by the whole experience. I don't think he loved the studio experience on that. He was always a very polite guy. Um, but he passed, he passed on Ronan, but he hired me to write something else. And he said, I really like the script. I just wasn't ready to get back to work. And then at one point later, as we were working, he said, I wish I directed Ronan. And by then I was like, me too. <laughs> because you know, John came on and John was a brilliant guy. Um, and when I met him, he was sort of the next choice. And, and, um, and we sat down in a restaurant. I think it was Dan Tana's in Los Angeles. Um, and uh, the, you know, it's, a, it's a place with like caricatures on the walls, like truly old Los Angeles. I think it's still there. Um, I don't know if it survived the pandemic. I haven't been back since the pandemic. I was there right before and it was still there. Um, uh, we, we sat down with Frank and we had this a really good dinner. And the first thing John said was to me was, I come from the age of live television and the writer was king, so you can trust me. And then we began this process. And now he pushed for more realism. He understood what I was doing. And so he worked and he had some very good ideas. And it just cinematically, he was so sharp. And one of the things he taught me that's one of the best things I've ever learned is like, if you have people sitting in a room talking about what they're going to do, flash cut to them talking. Don't just go like, we're going to be over here with the armored car. Cut, flash forward, see that armored car, then cut back. You, you know, create a sequence out of it so that they talk, you cut, you talk, you cut. And by the end of the time they're talking, you're up where the sequence is about to begin. And you slam right into it. And, and that really is screenwriting. That's writing with the camera, which often means having dialogue. But learning how to write sort of shot language. And, and if you, anybody wants an example of this, go find, um, you know, like old Walter Hill scripts on the internet. Uh, one of my old students just sent me uh, a script for Hard Times, a movie with Charles Bronson, this action film. And it, he doesn't even use INTs and EXTs there. It's just sort of, you know, you know, you know the, the main character, the character's name in capital letters, you know, what you would call shot function these days in Final Draft. It's just shot to shot to shot. Sometimes the shot is, you know, Cheney's apartment. Sometimes it's, you know, Cheney walks, you know, the, um, the you know, the locomotive steams, but it, it, it reads very well. And you really can see the, the script. Um, I've heard the, um, that film with um, uh, Jake Gyllenhaal, where he's a photographer, Nightcrawler. This, I, I haven't read it, but I've heard the screenplay to that reads a great deal like that. Ronan's not quite, Ronan has INTs and EACs, and I was still, I was I had I was fluent in screenwriter ease by then, but now I'm you know I've been doing it for so long I'm now so versed in all of the tricks that I know stuff that I didn't even know then like you know I had learned quite a bit and John taught me an enormous amount, and he was great to work with and and you know a, a lot of you know we talked about character stuff we talked a lot about action he was a master of action, and we ended up in pre production. Um, and we still didn't have an actor. We were certain De Niro was circling us. They, you know, you could say we were circling him, but it was, you know, if he wanted to do it, that he was going to do it. 
But Frankenheimer got over and he was already doing pre-production and, and he flew, he had me fly over um, right as De Niro was sort of closing. Um, but he was already there and I, and I was stunned at how far into it he, he already was. And he said, hey, you know, you got to get the studio as pregnant as possible to spend their money. And only in Hollywood can you be a little bit pregnant. But the more pregnant you make them, the more they have to make the movie to recoup the money they've spent. That's the idea. Um, and uh, but anyways, I drove over. I, drove, I flew to Paris. Again, one of these wonderful, you know, you have a Go movie being made. You know, it's first class and, and the... They're, they're handing you a per diem and, and it's, you know, everything is wonderful. And John and I are, along with the production designer, are driving through Paris, looking at like, the, uh, covering the car chase, dry, literally driving the whole car chase, you know, stopping and getting out where there's going to be a shootout. We were in one of the tunnels um, where the, the, Car, the cop car comes out of one tunnel and comes right by us. At the end of that was the Princess Die tunnel. We, all, she had just, the accident was like a month, a couple of weeks before we got there, I think. And, and um, wow. there were still flowers all over the place by the tunnel exit. And um, I was driving with John and, and we're talking, I'm taking notes. And as we drove, this other tunnel came out and a cop car glided like per perfect tandem with us. And John and I looked at each other and I went, yeah. And I, I, I knew what he wanted. I don't think he even had to tell me. I, I, but the cop car comes out, it flips. I, he added the part where they sort of drive around the wreckage because he was masterful with this sh shit. I think I said it, you know, it, it flips just missing them. Something like that. I can't remember. It's been a long time when I wrote 11,000 drafts of this script. Um, you know, one of which may exist on the internet. There's so many more. So at this point, all is good. Um, and now we come back from this, and now De Niro's on board. It's on the front page of Variety and, and Hollywood Reporter. I'm getting phone calls from all over LA. You know, I now really am the screenwriter of the moment. I've written a go De Niro film. Um, and uh, we come back to meet with De Niro, and this is where trouble really happens for me, not necessarily for the film, but um you know i come in and, and i fly back with john on an airplane and you know i always want to be careful how to talk about john because he was i th i thought he was going to be my mentor and i do feel that he betrayed me i you know i and i um it's like when william goldman says in adventures in the screen trade about robert redford I, I think this was a gutless move like you know i john betrayed me because on the flight back New York to meet with De Niro. We rode, you know, we're together in first class. Um, John speaks fluent French. He's talking with the air of the flight attendant. And, you know, he's a very impressive guy. And, um, and one of the things he, I, he says to me, or I say to him, is he says, follow my lead when we go into the office. And I say, don't worry. I really feel I can trust you. He goes, yes, you can. The next day we walk into the office and Frank Mancuso is there. Frank Mancuso Jr. is there. John shows up and he's got, he says, I have their notes, their major. And we walk into the room and these guys, they wanted reality and I'd written John Wu. And John Frank and I were working with me for six months. And at this point, we sort of, when they were like, why did you do it like this? 
John started turning to me going, you know, well, yeah, why'd you do it like this? And I wanted to go, geez, John, like the last six months that we were working together on this, I thought that it, it kind of covered all of it. But I kept my mouth shut. And till my dying day, I will say Frankenheimer sold me. I, it, was, it was like, why'd you do it like this? With all due respect, this is high school. This is house painting. It was brutal. And I felt it was a complete betrayal. And I will say John Frankenheimer had a real history of doing this. He'd had to pay other people off in a lawsuit. And it was a tough experience. And that scene in the video story that's not there, that was their, their least favorite scene. And Lindsay Duran, who is a brilliant woman, like, you know, look her up online, see what people say about her. It was her favorite scene in the movie. So, and by the way, big boy time, like, this is what they wanted. It's what they got. I rewrote things. I had a character called Swede, who Peter Stamari was going to play. He became uh, Spence, who Sean Bean played. I wrote one more draft, and then I was gone. And I was gone for good. Like, it, it, whatever, it didn't satisfy. It really didn't satisfy. And I was gone. And it was brutal. I, I didn't sleep for, like, three days. And that was when my manager went, did the check clear next? Like, it, it, and it really was a valuable lesson. I never let anything like this. And I've had tough situations like this again. Never bothered me like this ever again. We interrupt this program to bring you a special report calling all agents independent podcasting much like the spy game requires considerable resources whether it's research equipment hosting or of course constructing a top secret volcano lair we're putting out the call for your support that's right as you may know we've activated the spy hearts patreon home of our ever-growing lineup of Agents in the Field episodes where we decode non-spy films from your favorite spy actors and full film commentaries with more intel than a Basil Exposition briefing. Cam, what have we got in our crosshairs this month? The holidays may be over, but it's time to catch up on our Christmas content on Patreon. We have reviews for Love Actually and Muppet Christmas Carol, plus a commentary for The Long Kiss Goodnight. Who needs Santa with a haul like that? And if that sounds delicious, then become a true spy hard today and join the circus at patreon.com slash spyhards. But before this message self-destructs, Cam, resume the spy jinx. So what were like the major changes that happened once David Mamet came on? Like when you watch the film, what are the things that changed? Okay, here, here's the big changes. Like there's a bunch of different dialogue, but like, you know, Here's here's an example. I can, I'm not going to remember it all. And I, by the way, David Mamet was one of my idols. Like the, the year before I met a writer, or two years before I met a writer's guild dinner and Sidney Lumet's getting an award and David Mamet's there to give it to him. And he, I am in the bathroom and he comes in and pees in the urinal next to me. I run back to my wife and go like, David Mamet just peed right next to me. I was so excited. Um, and like he wasn't part, he rewrote it. Um, uh, what was said by John in the in the newspapers when I threatened to sue John? I, I don't know whether Mamet ever said it or not. I suspect he didn't because I, John had a history of going to places, and I'll explain why in a moment. But the changes he made mostly dialogue. Mm -hmm. Well, you know that scene by the river where they're going to buy guns. That was originally just De Niro and um jean renault and they were going to get a piece of information rather than guns but it was exactly the same thing it did exactly the same beat right exact same beat it was you know i had said it in a part john moved me to the river because he liked it he was going to have the 
We put a guy was going to get hit by a spotlight. I am sure I wrote that into a draft at least. And that's it. John knew what he wanted. He was brilliant. Um, they, they wanted to take out a lot of the sort of more comic booky stuff that I had done and grounded in reality. But the only really significant change where they went to a completely different place was the final set piece was supposed to be in a French chateau. As structurally, it was exactly my script. Scenes were very much aligned, lots of new dialogue, but the last scene was supposed to go into a chateau. It was supposed to be more Seven Samurai, like these two guys against many. They were going to blow the fuck out of it. They, they, they had a, a chateau that they were using as a model, and they were going to film some stuff there, and then we're going to build the rest in a studio and then blow it up. Um, and it was going to be fun. Uh, and that got switched to an ice skating rink, which, by the way, I watched and said, I have an ice skating rink in the mall in my house and my town. <laughs> like, you know, I, the whole point of every set piece I had here was it's something you don't see in America. But, you know, other than that, I lots was changed. And, you know, there's there. I don't know how many drafts of mine are out there. I know there's one of mine that doesn't have the character Spence, but I created him as well. I, stuff got changed. Plenty of stuff got done a lot. Mamet wrote a lot of dialogue. Um, some of it was radically different. Some of it was just at that point when um, in the amphitheater, when Stellan Skarsgård has been caught by Robert De Niro, and he says, you know, you're pretty good in the locker room, but you're not so hot when you lace up your spikes. My line was, you might have been, you know, you might be one badass technical spook, but you wouldn't have lasted a day in the field. Like, right. the, it, it's, it ain't any different. I don't, you know, maybe it's not as good, but, it, you know, it's, and I can't remember if I'm putting myself correctly. I think my dialogue's not bad. Um, anyhow, but it got changed and I had to accept it. Um, and, and it was grounded in sort of, they, they cut out my video store scene. My, my, um, uh, it, you know, it was what it was. I'm still really proud of it. There's a shit ton of me in it. All the double crosses, all the reversals, all the plot points are mine. Um, you know, the reveal of who everybody is, the, the woman changing sides at the end, all of found in, you know, all the way back to my very, very original draft. Um, so, you know, stuff gets changed. I have rewritten other people. People have rewritten me. I've been, I have been in Writers Guild arbitrations on both sides. It's a business, you know, and, and you deal with this and you move on. So... Well, yeah, I'm glad you see it with such sort of sort of humility to the whole situation now. In retrospect, and I was looking on like Wikipedia and saw some of the quotes that were from Frankenheimer and yourself, and and I don't really want to get into that. People can look that up themselves. I'm more want to focus on what you did with this film. I think that's the important part to me. Right. It's yeah. It's and in the end, I will just say one other thing to that. Frankenheimer was quoted as saying, "You know, we didn't shoot a line as like script, and I threatened to sue him." And he published a full page ad in Variety uh, and Hollywood Reporter going like, you know, the, you know, JD wrote this movie. He gave me lots of credit and he defended me from baseless rumors. And, and you know, we kind of patched it up at the, at, mm. you know, he shook my hand at the opening and that was the end of it. And I never saw, I, I never saw him again. Um, but, you know, it was what it was. And he still, a, he was a brilliant filmmaker. He had his demons, but all we all have our demons. Like the you know, um, and he was a brilliant filmmaker. Well, one thing I I, I want to ask about, especially with your version, and see if this is something that you came up with or it was a mammoth creation, 
is the case, the MacGuffin. Is that is that? Oh yeah, no, that was always mine, and, and I didn't want anybody to ever know what it was. And at one point, they had me reveal what it was, and I was like, "This isn't as good." And that Frankenheimer was like, "No, we don't want to know what's in the case." Now, <laughs> at one point, when I wrote this, the floppy disk was just coming into vogue as a as a MacGuffin. <laughs> So at the very end, here is one of the things I wrote that I still like. The briefcase is on Stellan Skarsgård's arm. He's got Natasha McElhone, his poster, none of this happened. He's got like, he's got a gun there ahead. He's holding it and the briefcase is wired to explode if anybody other than Stellan Skarsgård opens it. And and De Niro can kill Stellan Skarsgård, but he can't say that that for sure she dies and so instead, he shoots the briefcase off his wrist, and it's going to open. And Stellan Skarsgård fumbles. And again, I'm using, you know, I can't remember their names anymore. Deirdre and Seamus. As Seamus was supposed to, because none of them were, uh, only De Niro was on board at this point. All the rest of them came later. Um, but it's not Seamus either. It's uh, Gregor. Um, uh, that as Gregor reaches for the case, Deirdre has enough sense. They were by the lake of the chateau it looked like i had said it's a mini versailles and they found a place that looked like versailles (laughs) she she was supposed to have enough sense to dive into the lake and get under the water so that the explosion at ground level uh, you know was going to go up and not and she was going to go down and it it kills um gregor and we didn't, up until this point, you don't know what it is. And as the case opens, for one second, you were supposed to see a floppy disk. And then oh. it was going to be. <laughs> and I thought that was fun. It would, you see the MacGuffin, but you never find yeah. out what's on it. And at one point, they, they, were, they made me have it get saved. And then it was like, then we made me come up with what was on it, which was like all the soft money in the world. It was, it, and then John came in and said, it's best if we never find out. We were inundated on Twitter with just questions about what's in the box. People just put in the gift from Seven. Yeah, it, what's in the box? Nothing. It's a. I never cared what it was. I only cared about my Roman. <laughs> so, like, I don't know because neither did they. But, mm. You know, they, it, it's the. Um, they're just warriors for hire. Their job was to just come through alive. Although in the end, De Niro's character is, you know, not a warrior for hire. He's undercover, which was. A twist that was also in my script. Well, speaking of uh, characters as well, and you mentioned Spence, and that was your creation. One question came up a couple of times was just about that sort of he appears at the start and then he's thrown out because he actually has no skill. It's he was, was he supposed to come back in, or was it like that was the concept when when he was Swede and Peter Stamare, who's an old friend of mine, was going to play him. He was supposed to be working with Gregor during. The robbery and and as as in my version as Spence, it was still the same thing, and you know he threatens Gregor like don't you fuck me and Gregor acts all afraid and when, as soon as the Gregor has gotten the case he turns around and shoots Spence, and he was supposed to die, right? But that all all that don't I know you stuff that came from that was supposed to be with Larry the driver and it was given. To the movie star because you, you give the movie star everything, but don't I? That was don't I know you? That stuff from the early meeting. You notice Larry doesn't have much to say. He was supposed yeah. to be more annoying. He was supposed to ask, uh, be kind of annoying, and he f- was supposed to fuck with Spence. 
And Spence was supposed to hate him more than uh, Sam. And, um, and uh, therefore, um, in fact, I think that Spence was about to kill Larry when Gregor shoots him. And Larry's already hurt, but um, Spence has shot him once. He's about to shoot him again and kill him. And Gregor shoots just from behind, just shoots Spence on the back of the head, takes the case and drives off, leaving Larry there wounded but not dead. And then it goes to the very next scene, which is them treating Larry's wound in, in the room and wondering how they're going to find him. And it's, we're going to find him through his cell phone. And then on it goes. So right. it's different, but exactly the same, except no Spence. And he disappears. And that always bothered me. And it's, it's, I've gotten that comment from a lot of people. How, I thought he was coming back at the end. Yeah, yeah. Although, as somewhat people who like talk about spy movies every week, we're so used to people disappearing and reappearing with a heel turn. Right. It's actually kind of refreshing in this film for the the fact that he doesn't turn up. In, in that sense, I, I think that the, in terms of reality, I wouldn't be surprised if Mick Gould said, "Hey, man, people, somebody fucks up, they're gone," mm. and like, and they're just cut loose. So, you know, for the reality quotient of it, that's fine. He was supposed to disappear from my film as well at the exact same point, but he was supposed to be dead. So um, I was racking up more body count. You, you know, I, it doesn't bother me overly. Actually, I, I kind of like it too. Like, you know, I would rather see him get killed, but David Mann's a good writer. I, I, I don't deny. I mean, the stuff he did is good. I will say, I think it was Anthony Lane in The New Yorker said about the surgery scene, I'd love to know if it was Mamet's idea or Frankenheimer's. I was like, fuck, man, that, that's so 100% down to the camera angle. In the mirror, my scene. Mamet wrote one line of that scene. I took a guy's appendix out with a grapefruit soon, which I wouldn't be surprised if he got from Mick because it's the kind of thing a real guy would know. Right. Mm. Great line, but every other bit of that is mine. One of the things I'd read online a fair amount was that a lot changed with the Deirdre character. Was that the case or is that kind of... Yeah, she she just got smaller. Um, she was, Nicole Kidman wanted to play the part, but she couldn't get out of eyes wide shut. It was a big deal. I was, this is when I was over in pre-production in Paris. Um, and, uh, um, the, we were waiting to find out and Tom Cruise, again, I'm telling you what I heard. I, it, it, it's, you know, <laughs> screenwriter is always the least important person in the room, unless they're also the director or the producer. <laughs> So, you know, I'm telling you what I heard. And what I heard was Tom Cruise went and talked to um, Stanley Kubrick because they didn't need her for much of anything. But Stanley wants you there if he needs you. And they wouldn't let her go. And so then it was like, and and Gina Davis had turned it down. Um, uh, And Alec Baldwin turned it down. He wanted to do it, but I think they just had... He, he and Kim and just sort of got Kim Basinger got married. I don't know if their baby was born yet, but like, you know, he was in that mode of being close to home and they might've just had a baby or might've been pregnant, whatever it was. He was just like, I can't commit to going to Europe right now for this much of my life. Um, so we had, we had De Niro and um, we didn't get Gina Davis. We got, um, we had Nicole Kidman, but then she didn't want to do it. And now it was, um, I know they considered Deborah Unger, who's a great actress. Um, yeah. uh, and, and then one of, you know, one of the really good things about um, Natasha McElhone, 
is that she really is Irish. So like, you know, they, mm. they knew they were going to get the accent right. Plus she is a great actress. Um, but they, they, things got taken away from the character, um, I think. Um, and and, and it, I don't know, just, I think emphasis got shifted. She was a little more important at times. Um, uh, um, I'm not mistaken. I thought she killed Seamus at the, I, you know, I'm trying to remember, like, you know, I, I, I think I gave her, um yeah because she kills she kills Seamus in the um because it's Seamus dies before Gregor in this iteration the Russians are there the Russians get killed Seamus dies Gregor is last man standing with the case um and uh um and that's when Sam shoots the briefcase open so, so I had let Deirdre that's what it was Deirdre kills Seamus okay and instead now that becomes John Renault's thing um and so you know it's it, i i always like giving the women like you know a big part of the action oh yeah and absolutely. letting them vanquish one of the significant villains and and that got yanked out and you know it, it it's always it is what it is and i'm still you know, enormously pleased with the result and and i wish that john and i had ever gotten a chance to sit down and talk um in more detail um, the, the premiere was sort of too crowded other than sort of shake hand and briefly me telling me did a good job and him going like, really sorry about everything that happened and, and you know it, it kind of let it go like that um, uh, I would have I would have liked because I really respected him and I still did like the, you know mm -hmm. the, the guys did some remarkable things on film you know watch the train one of the first real action movies with big action set pieces like the bombing of the rail yard like like really big things it's the you know the it, it, it you know a really important film in my mind a lot i mean manchurian candidate the you know seconds these yep. really important movies well, I, I'm conscious of your of your time jd so i want a couple of questions and we'll sure. wrap us up um firstly i think one thing this film does really well is have multiple complex characters existing at the same time and i look at some films these days and can't even manage one complex character so i think that's credit to you for, for putting that together and having all of these different people have different personalities was that something you aimed for when you put it together or, or was it more a star vehicle absolutely i had in my i keep a notebook to this day i i did more journaling back then and my journals are always just about my work like maybe once in a while some aspect I don't find my life so interesting that I need to pull it apart or talk about what I had for dinner. I, I just usually I'm breaking down my work. I use my notebook as the way an artist uses a sketch pad. And I, I outlined Ronan and I did so much work. Um, uh, I think Spike Lee journals like this. I read a Spike Lee journal, which was what got me doing this. It was very influential for me. Uh, really taught me a lot. And um, uh, I just, you know, snippets of dialogue and then like, just, just, you know, Deirdre, like, you know, been in the IRA since whenever, was expected to do this, was expected to do that, sees this as her opportunity to get out. Shameless, desperate, but, you know, I really broke down, you know, gave everybody an agenda. And, um, and I still do a lot of that. I always, you know, sometimes I draw diagrams, like who relates to who, who's on top, who's, you know, the, um, you know, who, you know who's the power person um do you ever read henry the fourth 
Yep. The, you know, my in graduate school, my professor did his diagram where he said, here's Henry at the top, and he created a triangle, Hotspur on one side, Falstaff on the other. He said, Henry, Hal, ends up getting sort of equal portions of Hotspur and Falstaff. He's got enough of the warrior, honorable guy, although you don't see it at first because it's hid beneath the sun, as, as Henry says, uh, but he's got enough Falstaff in him to balance it so he becomes kind of the perfect king. It was, I was like, whoa, that's a really interesting diagram. And I started doing it with my stuff, but with more characters, the diagrams build out. And in the end, you know, it, it only matters that it please you. There's no right or wrong math to this. It's, it's whatever you see the relationship be. And I just, for me, found it really useful. So I definitely did that with the characters. I, I think it absolutely helped. And the other, the other question I had, I don't know if Cam has a question as well, but is, you know, looking back on the film now, obviously there was that unfortunate instance that happened with the director and, and the, the rewrites, but that's put away now. Yeah, it, is, it is what it is. It's all done. It is what it is, yeah. Looking back on the project now, what is your favorite moment? Oh, gosh. I, I think the surgery scene really is. Like when we watched it, the people around me were grimacing in pain. Like there was a guy behind us grunting with every one of the, the forceps clinking on the bullet. That's in the screenplay. It clinks on the bullet and then comes up empty. I was very proud of the, that. It played out exactly as I imagined it. And, you know, and so did other moments, but it was the most purely me of all of them. Because I had that scene before I wrote the movie. Um, and I, I just, it came to me one night, I, I, too long a story to go into it, but I thought of it and I was like, I'm putting it, I knew I was about to write Ronan. I, it, my deal hadn't even fallen apart yet on Bad Karma. I just, I knew I was gonna write the script. It just, it came about differently. Um, uh, anyhow, um, the, the, that scene just, it really was what I wanted to be. Plus, I mean, the, the action set pieces are mostly very scripted. Um, and they really fit the way I saw them. The last one is not mine, but it, although it matches what I wrote, I, and I do think mine was more exciting. But, you know, they drove a, an armored Mercedes through the front door of a chateau. <laughs> John was looking forward to that. He might never have admitted it after the fact, but I know he was because he told me. Like, um, uh, it's anyhow. It's um, I, I loved that scene in particular. I just, you know, my wife knew it was important to me. She squeezed my hand, and there was a guy in such discomfort behind me i was so proud of that nice. <laughs> I, I have to say you, you know the there's been a lot of stuff since then but this was the beginning of sort of ear slicing scenes and and uh, you know it it was just the if you ever watch master and commander they one up me by having him take his own bullet out but they even use the same fucking mirror thing it's, i was like you ripped me off but you did it really well <laughs> <laughs> Well, I did have one question. There's a couple different endings for the film on, you know, the home video releases, the one obviously in the movie and then the one in the deleted scenes. What was your original ending? They were um, in my original ending. And again, it was it was just them sort of escaping with their lives. Deirdre was still alive and sort of they part ways. Um, uh, they've got so many, but in one and this was this was the one they pushed me to do. It was dark and we all agree, well, we'll film this and then we'll see what happens. But the idea was they survive. And they are now, um, and it was Jean Renault who ended up in the hospital. Not he, he almost sacrifices his life to save Sam's to pay him back. Um, and he's in the hospital and Sam is not. But when Jean Renault was out, they're all in a cafe by the river. 
and John Renault is trying to persuade them to go into business together. And, and because Sam has sort of allowed this thing to be destroyed, so he thinks he might not be able to go back to the CIA. Deirdre knows that she can't go back to the, the IRA. And Vincent, you know, just wants to sort of go into business with these guys, a new team of Ronan. And a passing tug, you know, one of those river tour things goes by and a, a guy on it suddenly stands up and says, this is for Seamus. And he shoots her and the boat goes on. De Niro shoots back and kills him. Then he and, um, you know, Sam and Vincent run and uh, they, they sort of get away. And, you know, Vincent lights up two cigarettes. They light up two cigarettes much earlier in the, the movie and mine cigarettes were a little more important because Vincent always smokes and Sam smokes once in a while. And that annoys Vincent because he, that he's capable of having once in a while a cigarette and Sam lights up two cigarettes and it's sort of foggy. And he turns around to hand one to Sam. They've survived. Deirdre's dead. They know she's dead. And he looks around and Sam isn't there. And, he's, and then he says, goodbye, Sam. He throws the cigarette, Sam's cigarette into the, the send. And as it goes out, the movie ends. That was my, original ending. And that's kind of like the van. But we also knew all along that that was going to test like that. We said, like, I can see how that's going to test. So there was, I, we had different versions of a happier ending. So now it has a sort of semi-happy. It was always supposed to be bittersweet. Sam was supposed to sort of go back to being, the idea is these guys are loners. And I, I wrote so many different endings. I, I, I can't count Sometimes the drafts were just minor tweaks, but you know, like, let's work on the end. Let's do this. Let's do that. So I always wanted it to be bittersweet. Sometimes it was happy. <laughs> Sometimes it was really bleak. Sometimes it was in between. Um, I like the last scene that, and Mamet wrote it. I do really do like it. Um, yeah. I think it suits the tone of the movie. And I wrote a scene somewhere in the umpteen drafts that I wrote that I think reflects it as well. So. Well, I mean, I think on behalf of everyone who loves Ronin, including our listeners that have reached out to send in questions that we've mostly asked, I'm glad we got the chance to do that. Thank you for the film uh, in that respect. And before we let you go, JD, there's a couple of questions we ask every single person who comes sure. on the show, and we can't let you escape without doing it. As we are a spy movie podcast, what is your favorite spy movie? Well, boy, that's a toughie. Um, when I was young... I saw the spy who came in from the cold and I didn't even all understand it, but I remember Richard Burton getting shot at the end. I was like, well, that was intense. Well, I'm sure my dad watched it with me on TV. Um, I didn't like it. I didn't really understand it. You know, I might've been eight or nine. Um, I'm pretty sure I saw it on TV and not in a the movie theater. I wouldn't have taken to a movie theater for that. But then three days of the condor. Yep. They really, really great one. Um, I'm trying to think, you know, name some, because I, I, I've seen most of them. But I mean, any of the Bond films, the Mission Impossibles, Jason Bournes. I mean, I love the Bond films, and I really enjoyed the Bourne films. They, they, at one point, my attorney said to me, would you be interested in talking to Doug Lyman about, have you ever read The Bourne Identity? Would you be interested in talking to Doug Lyman? And I had just signed to work with Alfonso Cuarón, and I was like, I can't. Wow. And the, the thing I ended up doing with Alfonso Sort of, it was a great time. The studio was a little wary of it. I want it to wait too much of a story to tell. But they pissed him off. We kind of walked away. Then they wanted to make it again. But by then, he wanted to, like, really change it. And, and they wanted me to write it for the very little amount of money that I was owed, like the last $10,000. And he wanted a brand new script, kind of. 
And he wasn't, I think he wasn't really into it anyways. I think he was pissed at them, the studio for what had happened previously. And so it, it didn't happen, but although he was one of the greatest guys I ever worked with. So. Okay. Well, I think it's a good bunch of favorite movies there. Three Days of the Condor is one of mine. Absolutely. I was going to say, in terms of a movie, there's not really a spy movie, but that almost goes there. Children of Men. It's not a spy movie, but it's got, there is a clandestine aspect to it. He acts yeah. like an operative a great deal. The government is involved. There are in those sort of freedom fight, the various units, there's, there's a real, it plays like a spy movie. This just occurred to me, even though it's not. That's a definitely great film. I, I think I, I, I could hear arguments for it, to be fair. I could, I could see your point. Well, it's, not, it's not a spy movie, but it, I would say it's, a, it, it, it's in the next ballpark over. Mm. Uh, well, you mentioned, of course, a, a, a love of James Bond. Is there any particular James Bond films that you're a fan of? Um, uh, let's. I mean, the, the, the very first Daniel Craig one I really, really liked. I, they got a little for me over much after that. I thought they were trying to do an awful lot. Like the... Um, mm. Uh, you know, I am fortuitously the recipient of screeners at, during Oscar season. I, even though I can't vote for the Oscars, I vote for the Writers Guild Awards. So I've gotten a bunch of those and I'll watch them and it'd be late at night. And I'm always like, I got to come back tomorrow. It's like, there's too much going on. And I, and they're really fun. But the, the very first um, uh, one of those I thought was great. And in terms of the other ones, um, going back to the, Probably one of the least appropriate ones at this point. Um, is it th- where does he go to Japan? Is that Thunderball? You only live twice. Only live twice. I, I I really did when I saw it. Really loved that one. It's 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 a very good looking film. It's a good looking film. I was young and very impressionable, and and thought it was just badass. <laughs> We're big fans of the film. And I think that's it in terms of the spy questions. I did just read something on IMDb today. Can you clear this up? Is there a future for Ronan? It's always in development. I hope so because I'll make some money. It's constantly. <laughs> MGM controls it. I wrote a pilot for it once. I wrote a couple of different things for it in different iterations with different people. Um, other people, like, you know, people as great as Tom Fontana have taken a whack at it and not had their version get done. I, I heard the guy from Vikings was doing it, but that was like four years ago. I, I, I don't know. I, w- I wish they'd let me do it, but the, you know, I, I have a series that I just set up with a company called Halcyon that makes Mr. Mercedes and Hunters with Al Pacino and the Mysterious Benedict Society. Mine's called The Analyst, and it is a spy thing. It's about a CIA financial analyst, on the, and they really have financial analysts who, where's China going to be with their military budget in 20 years? Plus, where's the drug money going? There's, there's all sorts of money aspects. And this guy is one of them. He's burned out. His career was once promising. It's now gone. He's a functioning alcoholic. It's his last day. And he's alone in the office when he uncovers something that's like fiscal of nature. And he just thinks it's going to fuck his hated boss. And he ends up realizing he's uncovered something much greater. And he's locked on his floor. He can't call anybody for help. And, and he knows somebody's coming to kill him. And the only thing he can do is figure out what it is he's figured out so that he has something to trade for his life. Well, it looks like you've uh, it looks like you just booked your return onto the podcast when that comes out. Oh. So it, it's, I mean, this I, I've I've written this. I, my partner is Barbara Dufino, who produced you know Casino, and she executive produced Goodfellas, and produced You Can Count on Me, and some thirty five other movies. And and she's my partner on this. She developed it. With, I you know I it was my idea, but she completely helped me with it. You know, gave me notes on every iteration of the script and 
um, now we're trying to do it. Like the, the you know, it's we've it's hopefully it's just about to appear on IMDb because Barbara just proposed. We were talking today and with Matt Lowe's the exec at Halcyon. So that's my next, hopefully not the spy thing. Awesome. Mm. Well, there you go. I, I'm looking forward to. Uh, I'll drop you an email when I see it pop up on IMDb, and we'll be. Yeah, it, it, yeah it'll 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 pop up on IMDb sooner than it'll pop up anywhere else. <laughs> right. As things take time in this business. Anyways, I, I do have to run, but thank you guys so much for, this was a lot of fun. No, thank you for taking the time to speak to us and, and chronicle the story of Ronan and set the record straight. So thank you very much, J.D., for joining us. Again, I'll, I will set the record straight as I remember it. I, I have done my best to be as honest as possible. It's, you know, it's an industry in which honesty is often in short supply, but the really good people I've met, like Alfonso Paron and Barbara Dufina, are always honest. So it's the, I, I've done my best to try to hold up <laughs> to that ideal. Great job and big fan of the movie. I rewatched it last night for this interview and it's just such a blast every time. So cool. Thank you so much. Thank you, guys. Take care. There you go, folks. We're back and we finally found out what was in that box. That's right. A floppy disk. Yeah. Are you satisfied now, folks? Now you know. <laughs> <laughs> this interview was so much fun. And what I really loved was that not only did we get some arcane information on Ronin, such as, you know, the earlier versions, which had uh, the floppy disk in the suitcase, which, I mean, that's really fun. But also that, like, JD really took us on, like, a guided tour of 1990s Hollywood and sort of what it was like to be a writer during that era where you had the whole birth of the writer auteurs like, you know, your Tarantinos and your um, Robert Rodriguez's. Absolutely. It, it's uh, Firstly, we should take a second to thank JD uh, mm-hmm. for coming on. The guy is a professor now, busy man. He's jumped on the show to talk about his his baby, which is Ronan. I mean, there's many scripts he created, not many that got turned into films. This is one of them, and he's very passionate about the film, and he wanted the the right story to be told about it because there was a lot of drama afterwards about who wrote what, who said what. I, I think this is going to stand the test of time as a document that will state exactly what he did, and I like that we got that from the man himself. Yeah, because I feel like over the years, the lines have gotten very blurry about who wrote Ronin because David Mamet, you know, is the big name, right? Like everyone knows David Mamet in the industry. So I think a lot of credit for the finished product of Ronan just got kind of pushed his way. So it was really great that JD came on and kind of cleared the record as to, you know, what his original vision of Ronan was and what changes were made, you know, between what he created and what wound up on the screen. It's the same situation as Matt Charman, who wrote Bridge of Spies. Obviously, once Spielberg was involved, he wanted some polish into the scripts that the Coen brothers were involved and they and they added quite a lot of like witty banter dialogue to the film but in terms of plot in terms of structure it was a really Matt Charman's film but often people will look at that as a Coen brothers film more than a Matt Charman film and really it is Matt's film and again with this this is really JD's film with some polishing from Mammoth yeah for sure because this was a passion project for him you know something he came up with like many years before it actually became an actual film that people could watch. Mm-hmm. And just the passion he had and talking about his inspirations, watching John Woo films and things like that. And just like the way that like the film changed between the earliest versions of that to working with John Frankenheimer on changes before he left the project. Yeah. 
Right, there were quite a lot of changes and different versions of the film and different castings that we discussed. But I, I suppose just to sort of wrap us up in a way, Cam, like what was the most interesting one for you? I thought it was really interesting when he said that Alfonso Cuaron was an early pick to direct this movie. Because in the years since, Alfonso Cuaron has gone on to become like one of the all-time directors of his generation, doing movies like Children of Men, which JD referenced later in the interview. But also, you know, two Oscar wins for directing for Gravity and Roma, as well as a couple others, like for editing and also for, I believe, um, cinematography. So it's like... That guy is such a distinct visionary. It makes me really curious like what his vision of Ronan would be because what wound up being the film, they went much more of a realistic approach to the material, which kind of plays to, I think, John Frankenheimer's strengths. But I would be very curious what a Alfonso Cuaron version of this would be. We think about like what Ronan is remembered for, which is like the driving sequences and the sort of grittiness of the, the, the life of spies post-Cold War. I think a lot of that might not be there. Yeah. You know, you look at what Quran did with like the third Harry Potter film, which kind of broke the mold on that franchise. And I think kind of creatively infused it with a little more life that carried it through to the end. And I would be very curious to see if he would bring maybe a little more of a, you know, JD talked about how John Woo was a big point of reference for this material and kind of the style. I'd be very curious what kind of style um, that uh, Quran would bring. Well, yeah, I mean, the Frankenheimer version is very grounded and gritty, and I think maybe there would be a little bit more fantasy. Mm, yeah. Not not like, you know, wands and witches, but just something that's slightly more hyper-realistic. Well, and just think of those, like, extended takes in Children of Men. He could have done something really cool with the cinematography of Ronan. Yeah, yeah, very true. Uh, I think, to answer my own question, because that's what I was really waiting for, was for me to talk again, mm. it, I... I was blown away just from the concept that Gina Davis could have been in this film. I I mean, I'm not the biggest fan of Long Kiss Goodnight, but she's definitely got the chops to be an action lead. Um, Nicole Kidman again as well. I mean, not that the Natasha McElhone character has a ton of action sequences. It's more like a love interest in a way in this film. Just to see what could have been done with a, a different actor and a, a big name like Gina Davis being attached to this film alongside like De Niro, Sean Bean, Stellan Skarsgård, would it have bumped it a little bit more to that film being more popular? Like I, I even JD references at the beginning of the interview, I said like the smash hit and I, I meant like on home video because it was well bought on home video. But again, it's not one of those films that you can say and everyone knows. No, no. Whereas I feel like it should be. Yeah, and, you know, he referenced, you know, Nicole Kidman as well, really wanting to do the movie and being unable to because of just her duties with Eyes Wide Shut, which was a production that went, I think, about 17 years, something like that. Like, Didn't someone was... else lose out on the role because of Eyes Wide Shut as well? Uh, she had to pass on the Avengers as well, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That production was very long. Uh, Stanley Kubrick is notoriously um, fastidious about his filmmaking and... Uh, that movie, its production was quite long. But um, no, like, I, I am curious, as you said, like, what happens if you have, say, a Gina Davis or a Nicole Kidman in that role? I think Natasha McElhone is good in the movie. As JD mentions, she's actually Irish, so could actually do the accent properly. But at the flip side, I think once you cast Natasha McElhone, the studio wants a little less of her in the movie. Yeah. Whereas if you have Gina Davis and Nicole Kidman, 
she's going to factor into the action more. They're going to give her a moment. And he mentioned in the interview, there was going to be a little more action for her in, you know, towards the end of the movie. Yeah. Uh, and I think if we had that movie, we'd be talking about her character a little bit more. Uh, I, I can't remember the character's name. Right. Just goes to show. But there you go. Uh, well, I mean, Cam, anything else you want to mention? Yeah. When JD said that his attorney inquired if he'd be interested in writing the Born Identity for uh, Doug Lyman, um, but was unable to do so just because of other obligations to Alfonso Cuaron. That would have been really interesting because the Born Identity, obviously Tony Gilroy uh, was the primary writer behind that first film, but that movie very much changed the game for what spy movies could be. So I'd be very interested to know what JD would have brought to it that maybe may have been different. Yeah, it, it, I mean, it, it would have been a completely different universe, I think. Mm-hmm. It, it It's hard to say because there's not like a, a wealth of his screenplays that got turned into films. Yeah. So I, I can't really like extrapolate what it would have been like, but it's nice to sort of go, what if? Because as you said, Bourne really did change the game. Bourne lit the fire underneath the Bond franchise that resulted in Casino Royale. Um, uh, maybe it would have been a brighter fire. Who knows? Yeah, we'll never really know. But it's just one of those interesting what-ifs that, you know, when he mentioned that one on the show, my ears definitely perked up big time. Yeah, and this is the really cool thing about doing these interviews is you get to find out little bits of trivia that, just isn't out there like the bits about Nicole Kidman, Gina Davis, uh, the original what could have been the director. Also, just JD's connection to the Bourne franchise. No, this would have been known without these discussions, and that's why I love having them. And just having that portrait of 1990s Hollywood and just like what it was like to be a writer at that point in time, which is such an interesting era and will probably never be replicated. I mean, you get, is this around the same time like Shane Black is having scripts bought off of him for several million? A few years before, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. That story, is that Long Kiss Goodnight I'm thinking of? Yeah, that was definitely one of them. That always blows me away that just like on a spec that just sends you a bunch of money and then you write the script. Craziness. Yeah. Well, you know, first interview of 2023. What a way to kickstart us. Uh, we've uh, hit, uh, yeah. 88 miles per hour, we've seen some serious shit. That's right, that's right. And how do you follow that one up, Scott? Well, uh, I guess the question goes to you, Cam. How do we follow that one up? We are going to be tackling our first Tom Cruise movie. We have gotten your letters. We know you want us to cover Tom Cruise spy films on the podcast. So, we are going to take a look at 2017's American Made. (laughs) Sorry. It, it wouldn't be Spy Hards <laughs> if we didn't put a weird little twist on it. It it couldn't it just couldn't be night and day. It just couldn't be the Mission Impossible films just yet. Is, is there any other ones I'm missing from his spy back catalogue? That's about it, yeah. There's, there's some people would like to say the Jack Reacher films, I'm not really sure they count. We could uh potentially, if we're looking at Hitman stuff, we could look at collateral at some point. Okay. Okay. We're so glad it's happening. We hope you enjoy the discussion. So, your mission, should you choose to accept it, is to join us next week as we tackle American Made. If you like what you heard on this interview, please consider leaving us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. And do not forget to follow us discreetly on social media at SpyHards. That's S-P-Y-H-A-R-D-S on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. But until next week, listeners, can you tell me 
What's the colour of the boathouse in Hereford?